First Samuel, we're in ch chapter 28, which is page 250 um, in the Pew Bibles. Reading almost all of the chapter, Scott took us up to verse 2 last week, so beginning at chapter 3 uh, to the end of chapter 28. And this is Saul and the medium, or the witch, I think, is, as some translations put it, uh, of Endor. So reading from verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. And then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Sorry, I missed a line there. Apologies. Verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow... You and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length from the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. The woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hands and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But 
his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she kickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. And there, verse 25, and we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word. I'm going to start this evening with a story that literally before today I had not shared with a living soul, not siblings, not parents, not friends, um, no one. Because I think it's fair to say uh, in a young man's life, the, the football team that he chooses to support, um, that is a, a major decision. He will spend a lot of time either being made fun of or making fun of others uh, based on that decision. Uh, and for many, that is determined... Uh, by the family that they are born into, uh, but that was not the case for me. Uh, my father was a, a keen rugby player. Uh, when mum was pregnant with me, he often would tell her to be careful because there was a future Irish international in there. Sadly, I, I disappointed him uh, in that respect. Um, but he was not. He would watch football, um, but never really tied his wagon to a particular team. I wasn't brought up as a you know, wearing a football shirt or, or, or any of that. And so as a, as a five-year-old, I was sent off to campaigners, uh, which is what we had rather than a BB or, or a junior saints or anything else. And so arrived kind of wide-eyed, thrown in with the bigger boys. Um, and within the first few minutes, uh, a young man who is, who is a friend to this day came over. He was a year older than me and literally grabbed me by both cheeks and put his face right there and said, do you support Glenavon? Now, I wasn't sure which way this conversation was going, but I was aware that this was a significant question and the shape of our relationship going forward from that point would be influenced by what answer I gave. And so taking a 50-50 shot, I said, yes. Now, there was no trace of a reaction um, on his face. And then he said, do you support Rangers? And slightly more confident now, because the first one didn't seem to have garnered any negative reaction. I thought, well, we'll go with it. Yes, yes, I do. And finally, and do you support Liverpool? And I said, yes. And he gave me a slap on the cheek and said, good lad. <laughs> and for the last 33 years or so, I have maintained to some varying degree of enthusiasm, but if you ask me which team I followed, that's, that's where it came from in my life. Uh, a random encounter, um, and for better and for worse at various times. Uh, not a great day today, but quite a good week, so you know, you roll with the punches. Uh, but what has that got to do with Samuel or any of this? You may be wondering, because it's this question of when the, when the pressure is on, when it's um, when suddenly that moment comes when you need to identify yourself, um, then the question is, what, what are we? Where are our allegiances? Who are we? Uh, and that's kind of the question that we will be exploring here in Samuel chapter 28. Um, as you work your way through the book of Samuel, as we have been doing, then chapter 28 is actually... Uh, something 
of an interruption uh, within the flow of the story that is being told concerning David. That was a very long sentence. I realized halfway through. Um, but if we were reading the events chronologically, you would actually you would read chapter 27, uh, and then you would read chapter 29, which happens before the events of chapter 28. Um, Chapter 27 is where David, as we read last week, goes undercover um, in service to the Philistine king Achish, or Achish, or however you pronounce that. Um, Chapter 29 is when, the as we'll probably hear in the next few weeks, uh, the Philistine rulers decide that actually it might not be the best idea to have Israel, or sorry, to have David and his men among their ranks if they are to go to war with Israel. And both of those things happen before these events uh, where Saul meets with this median of Endor. But that is a very intentional uh, decision made by the author. Um, and the reason is he's seeking to parallel the fortunes of these two men, Saul and David, um, as he lays out how both will respond um, in the face of crisis. Here in chapter 28, there is no doubt the severity uh, of the predicament that Saul finds himself in. Uh, The Philistines have gathered with massive force in order to attack Israel. And so we read uh, in verse 5 there that Saul's heart, upon seeing the military might of his foes, uh, is filled with terror. And it's this situation, or rather how how Saul responds to the situation that, that we're exploring today. Saul's first response would appear to be a somewhat noble one. And he looks to God uh, for guidance and asks what he should do. But no matter what he tries, the Lord remains silent. Apparently it was a, a fairly common practice in the ancient Near East that if one lay down and slept in a holy place or in a temple, uh, then the idea was that you would be gra- granted um, a vision or a divinely inspired dream that would answer a question or, or, or give you access to the wisdom that you seek. So it's probable here, as we're told in verse 6, that God refused to answer by, tra- by dreams, um, that Saul had tried that without meeting any success. And then there was the Urim, which was uh, part of the high priest's breath pl- breastplate. Um, we don't really know how that was used. Uh, that, that information has been lost, but it was somehow used to determine uh, the will of God. But again, that had not yielded any results. And nor did any answer come from any of the prophets. And so Saul, quite understandably, I suppose, is increasingly desperate. He looks out, he sees enemies by the thousand, but he's left standing completely alone. There there is no longer the voice of Samuel to guide. He has no assurance of the Lord's help. The future is a blank page. Um, It's a complete unknown to him, and all the indications are uh, there will be no happy ending this time. Saul is terrified. Now, at this point, if we were reading this chapter in isolation from the rest of the story, uh, we might find ourselves uh, perhaps feeling a little bit sorry for Saul, um, or maybe even going the other way and questioning the the goodness or the fairness of God in this scenario. Uh, But, of course, uh, we don't read this chapter in isolation. And we have to remember that Saul very intentionally turned away from God in disobedience. Uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, that among other things, we had that incident where Saul, in a fit of rage, had ordered the slaughter uh, of 85 of the Lord's priests for the crime of ministering to David while he was on the run. 
had also heard the word of the Lord spoken against him. God uh, had not been silent concerning Saul. It was really more of a case that Saul did not like any of the things that God had said. Now, as we read this story, and this is kind of just a, a, a sidestep, but I think um, as we get this picture of Saul, the, the one-time anointed king of Israel who has been rejected by Saul, I think it can throw up a big question for many believers. And so I think it's, it's worth a sort of a sidestep uh, to answer that question. Because I think the question that it demands is, is it possible for us to be cast off from God in the same way that Saul was? Does he do that? But I think uh, unless you're very new to the faith, you will know from personal experience that uh, I think all of us go through times when God, it seems, is silent. When he's not acting in the way that we would like him to or the way that we think that we should or he doesn't seem to be acting or doing anything at all. And so, what do we do with that? Has God cast us off? Has he rejected us? Has he rejected Saul as king here? We perhaps once knew what it was to feel like we were close with God, that he was right there, um, but now that seems to be gone. Has he left us? And so, let me offer some encouragement. I think a while ago I preached an entire sermon on this, but I think it's important, um, as I say, just for a little sidestep, but if you're in that season right now, or, or maybe just that you remember this, if that season should come upon you. Um, and the first thing is to say that that experience, or, or those thoughts, or those questions are not unusual. Um, often um, in church, we probably don't talk about our struggles as often as we should. Uh, we put on our Sunday best. Uh, we look for all the world, like a lovely group of Christians who have this all figured out. But the church is... Um, as that little cliche, I don't know who coined that, uh, is, but as it proclaims, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. I think I'm quoting Jim Stokes from our Bible study, maybe. I think you mentioned that at one point, Jim. But there we go. Um, we might not talk, uh, talk about it as often as we should, but for reasons that sometimes come to light in time, but sometimes will remain a mystery until we get to glory, and I don't know if we'll care enough to ask God when we get there. But he seems to allow us to go through these times of darkness. And I hope it's encouraging, though, that, that we know that that is the experience, I think, for all of us. And even if we look in the Psalms, it's the experience for David, a man after God's own heart, who wrote in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I don't think it's a question of whether we will experience it, because I think almost almost all, if not all, we will. But the question is, what do we do in that situation? And the answer, I think, is right there in Psalm 13, because after this anguished cry of God, why are you not there? Why do I feel like I can't see you? Nothing makes sense. That emotional outburst, it's followed up and, and, and closed, I suppose, with the last two verses of that psalm. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Feeling like God has forgotten him. Feeling that God has turned his back on him. What does David do? Though his heart says that God is not there, his head says, no, he is. That's not right. 
And stubbornly and determinately, determinedly, he says, I will sing praise to God, for he has been good to me. That's the model for us, I think. In those times, uh, we silence the emotions, we silence the accusations of the devil that would tell us that we are such a sinner that, of course, God has cast us off. He couldn't possibly give us more chances. In those scenarios, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We kick our brain into gear and we say, no, that is not true. And we praise him because God has been good to us. So have you been cast off? If you're in that situation, look, unless you desire to be cast off, unless you have intentionally and willfully turned away from him, renounced your faith uh, and sought other means, other spiritual means to gain peace, then let me just say, no, you have not. If you are worried that you have been cast off, if that idea is distressing to you, then you're still his. That's a sidestep. We'll go back, go back to Saul now. What does he do? Saul's back is against the wall. He is isolated and alone. His very life is at stake. Saul's response, as we know, is to ask his men if they can find him a medium interesting that without hesitation they didn't have to go and search they were like oh yeah there's one over there but anyway he goes to a medium and it's a a startling um, very direct contrast to David when we get to chapter 30 um, in this book we read the Amalekites have raided David's temporary homeland carrying off his wives and all the women and all the children of all his men they come back to find this scene of destruction Their families are gone, and it says they weep until they could weep no more. But that anguish that they experience quickly turns to bitterness um, and anger towards David, and they begin to talk about stoning him, because following him, after all, had brought them to this predicament. David's back was against the wall. He is isolated and alone. David's very life is at stake. But what does he do? Chapter 30, verse 6, we read his response. It says, But David finds strength in the Lord his God. See, Saul's decisions here, what we're reading, it's not um, a very unfortunate man turning to his last resort. What we're seeing here is is really the the revelation of, of Saul's true heart. Because if Saul had actually acknowledged the supremacy and sovereignty of God, if Saul had really desired to go forward with God, then he would not turn to a medium. If he wanted to heed the word of the true God of Israel, of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then surely he could have abdicated the throne, passed it to David, whom he had been told was the Lord's anointed. He could have waited upon the Lord, pleaded, mourned, led his men in days of prayer and fasting. But he did none of that. He sought out a medium. Saul here is not interested in having a a right relationship with the Lord God. He simply wants the benefits uh, of having God somehow on his side. And when those benefits aren't forthcoming, then he simply goes elsewhere. We read the story. Um, He disguises himself with ordinary clothes. And geographically, he, he has to kind of skirt around the edge of the Philistine encampment to get there. But... He, he sets off to find this woman in Endor. Now, that, that, 
that bit about him disguising himself with ordinary clothes. Um, it's an interesting little detail of the text because to do so, um, obviously Saul had to take off his royal robes, ones befitting of a king, um, which is was fittingly symbolic of this, that is, is one of really the closing acts of the kingship being removed from him. The witch at first, the witch or the medium or whatever we want to call her, uh, is terrified. Knowing that the practice has been made illegal by Saul, as we read at the start, and indeed could cost her her life. But when given assurance of her safety, and again it's interesting that, to note that Saul swears by the Lord as he embarks in this course of action that is so clearly against um, the Lord. But she proceeds with the ritual. And again, from what we know of ancient Near Eastern culture and practices, um, apparently there were certain spots where it was believed that served as sort of portholes between the spiritual world and ours. Uh, so the medium would dig a pit, and it was from that pit that the spirit would emerge, and afterwards the the... the earth would be filled back in and that would somehow prevent the spirit from escaping um, so she conducts this ritual uh, and Samuel's spirit duly appears and the witch we read cries out in terror now there are a few different ways of in, uh, interpreting that um, and questions that that maybe brings up in her mind uh, option one is, is simply that she recognized Samuel, kind of grasped the situation that she's in, that the Israelites are in, or, and why Saul is there. She realizes Saul's true identity uh, and assumes that she's now for the, the chopping block, that it has been a trap and that she's caught. And that is the reason for her, uh, for her terror. The second option um, is that the woman was actually a fraud, uh, that she wasn't really expecting to summon anything in reality. And so when she sees the spirit rising up out of the earth, that she's terrified because she's never seen anything like it. Uh, and that accounts for her reaction. Then there's the question of how Samuel's spirit, uh, could it really sort of be drawn back from heaven? Is that possible? Or was this a demonic presence or a spirit sent by God taking on Samuel's appearance? Uh, now, what well, you know, might be frustratingly, but I have no answers <laughs> to those questions. Uh, or I, I can't explain exactly what's going on in this exchange. To me, there's nothing in the text that would really indicate that it's not actually Samuel. And I would maybe lean in the direction uh, that God sent Samuel on this occasion to fulfill a very specific purpose. But that's not to say that such practices would be successful at any other, at any other time. I'd also say the Bible doesn't sort of seek to deny that there are dark spiritual powers at work in the world. The Egyptian magicians, uh, for example, could do some of the things that God did through Moses. These things are not condemned because they don't work. They are condemned because they're not of God. And ultimately then, mediums and, and all of these other sort of dark magic things, they're an effort to bypass God. To, to gain something which the Lord has not given, to look somewhere other than him to obtain some kind of advantage or blessing. It's placing our trust in something other than God and really proclaims that, that he is not enough for us. So all that is just to say I wouldn't insist necessarily that the woman was a total fraud. He had never seen a spirit before, but that, of course, could be the case. 
So beyond those suggestions or thoughts, that's, that's, that's as much guidance as I'm giving you there. Uh, you can think about it. Really, it depends who you read, their opinions on, on what was going on. But actually, I'm not sure that the questions really need to be answered. What we, what we know for sure is what the passage tells us, that a spirit does appear and pronounces what is a terrifying judgment on Saul. He and his sons will die the next day, and Saul is left, I think in the NIV it says, paralyzed with fright. Here in the ESV, I think it's just a strength is gone and he's lying on the ground. Saul's fall from grace um, is horrifying and now almost complete. The, the tall, handsome, strong, victorious warrior that the Lord had anointed as the first king of Israel is now stripped of his royal robes, lying with his fate in, face in the dirt, paralyzed, hungry, terrified, and distraught. Served his last meal by this medium before going out into the night. It's a grotesque scene, and one that is perhaps echoed centuries later when another man who turned away from the Lord left a last supper before going out into the night. We read in John 13.30, as soon as Judas had taken bread, he went out, and it was night. And again, the contrast with David is marked. Chapter 29, verse 10, as David resolves his crisis, he's told to get up early in the morning and to leave as soon as it gets light. While Saul sinks into darkness, David steps out into sunlight. So what about, what about us this morning? Um, just a, a couple of things for us to think about. Firstly, um, we're maybe not tempted on a daily basis to run off and consult a medium for guidance, um, although those things certainly still exist. Um, horoscopes are a, a regular part of many people's lives. Um, but perhaps, again, when we read this, it's not something that we think of a situation that we put ourselves directly in. Although another thing I've heard of recently, sort of in the last couple of years, which I'd never heard of before, was, um, is, is it charmers? Is that the word? People who give you a word or a, a thing if you're injured or an animal's injured or that? And, and that's maybe on the same spectrum as well. But I even if it's not, my question is, when are we tempted to step out, to step outside the Lord's will or his provision for our own benefit? When might we try and take something or or gain something that he has not given us. Following him has not delivered what I want, so I'll maybe try another way. Not found uh, a Christian husband or wife like I wanted, so maybe I'll do my own thing on that. Not getting the promotion or as much money at work because I'm being honest while others are deceitful. Well, maybe I'll do it their way at work. The house, the car, the bank account, not big enough lottery tickets is okay, right? Or, or maybe being slightly less than completely honest on the self-assessment. Whatever it might be, where we decide, well, there's God's way there, but if I go my way, there's, there's something else I can take for myself. But if, if that's how we're operating, are we really following God because we love him and because we want to please him? Or like Saul are we just hoping for some benefits by living a vaguely religious life? And if those benefits don't show up on time, well then, we'll compartmentalize all that Christian stuff and we'll 
keep it out of the stuff that we really care about or really worried about. I tried it, it didn't work for me, and so I'll, I'll try something else. Can't do that. Uh, if, if you're a Christian, then it's just not an option. Just like going to a medium should not have been an option for Saul. It has to be who we are, not something we do, not something that we can put on and take off depending what day of the week it is, like Saul did with his royal robes. And so that's my question. Is there anywhere, any area of lives where we're taking off our Christianity for a little while to go after something else, thinking, well, we'll, we'll just put it back on later? The passage reminds us forcefully that to put our hope in anything other than the living God is sheer folly. The consequence uh, of sin could barely be more powerfully illustrated than in this picture that closes the chapter. Think of what Saul's life could have been, the potential that was there, had he served the Lord with all his heart. Look at how he started out. As I said, the handsome, strong warrior king. But then look at this scene of where he ended up. Do we really doubt that God's way is what is best for us? Do we doubt that he is good? Do we doubt that he is for us? Do we doubt his love? All of us would probably say no, but when it comes to it, and that thing is over there and we want it, and God's way is not getting us there, then that little doubt creeps in, but maybe my way can be better. But we can have no grounds for that doubt. Because in Christ on the cross, we have the ultimate proof that he is for us, that he does love us. And so his way will always be, be best. We must trust him. And so that is our challenge. If we have taken off our Christianity anywhere, or if we are tempted to, might we refuse? Might we put it back on? if needs be. God is for us. May we not be left stepping out into that darkness with Saul, but with the Lord, might we step into the light with David. Amen.